I just love this sermon series that we're doing, Great Faith. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity for us to just realign ourselves with God and what he has for us in 2019. Um, as we've been doing this fast over the last week, there's like, like he said, there's, uh, Pastor Steve Morrow is the president of our ministry. Um, he mentioned that we have an app as well as a booklet as we're going through the fast. One of the things that it mentioned in that as a devotional was that great faith declares you know, God's promises when there's great obstacles. And there's no one better that I know who's actually done that, you know, than our guest speaker this morning, Pastor Shadrick Bell from Mosaic Church in Austin, Texas. And so can y'all just give him a nice welcome? You know, he's been here before, but it's always great to have Pastor Shadrick in. And he's not only a great friend, even my pastor at times, uh, but a brother as well. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, good morning and welcome to Luminous. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to honor you all's pastor, Pastor Ben and Brandy Chapman. If this is your first time here, let me tell you this, that you are not going to want to leave. They are amazing people. They're friends of mine and pastors of mine too as well, and so we're thankful to be here. As Pastor Austin said, yes, my name is Shadrick, and I serve as the campus ministry pastor to Mosaic Church, which is our every nation church in the Austin area. And my primary job is to oversee three of our campus ministries, one being the University of Texas, the Staple University in Austin. Number two, St. Edwards University. It's a university comprised of about 4,500 students with a strong international student background. And number three, it is Houston Tillerton University. Now, Houston Tillerton University is a historically black college and university in the Austin area, and it's actually Austin's first established university in the city. A lot of people don't know that. And I have a special love for Houston Tillerton University because our campus director is actually the director and boss of my household. It's my wife. She's sitting right here. <laughs> so, Caress, thank you. I love you. And I appreciate you for putting up with all the struggles that I cause you to as well. <laughs> it's true. So, one of the things that I love about being on the college campus is not just for the fight of faith for student salvation, but some of the other fights that you'll get into on campus. Like me, I got into a fight with a table not too long ago, and I actually lost that fight. That table um, dislocated my kneecap, tore my meniscus, broke my fibula, and um, tore all of my ankle ligaments. And the table is actually fine. It's still in Austin somewhere, but I'm not that great. I'll have surgery here in about two weeks. But I will say this, that if you are ever thinking about going into campus ministry or even volunteering on a campus, get ready for a fight. That's all I have to say. But regardless whether you're a full-time minister or you're working currently in the marketplace or you are a full-time stay-at-home parent, just know that it's going to take great faith for you to be able to walk out God's calling on your life. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about that because we are, again, continuing our series entitled Great Faith, where it is our ministry's hope and this church's hope to be able to have all of us have a better biblical understanding of the doctrine of faith and how we can actually apply that to our lives and the challenges that we face. And so I want to say this before we get started today, that before we can ever have great faith, some of us need to acknowledge that we don't have that much faith at all. And I just want to be able to say that because I know that I'm supposed to come here and encourage you and talk about God's promises. And I believe that. Go get that for yourself. But I'm going to leave that really for Pastor Ben and Pastor Austin. But I want us to come to the realization that 
We sometimes just don't have great faith. And I don't want us to actually be discouraged about that because it's actually not about how much faith we have, but who our faith is in. See, until you have a true, authentic belief in faith in Jesus, you'll never really have enough faith to overcome your life circumstances. So how do we get great faith? Are you ready for the answer? Nobody's ready. Are you ready for the answer? All right. Great faith can only truly be found in the resurrection of Jesus. Again, great faith can only be truly found in the resurrection of Jesus. And we say this because it says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, all of our preaching has been for nothing and your faith is useless. See, our entire Christian faith and all the promises that come along with it hinge with this one thought or question Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And this is why Pastor Chris Johnson, one of our Every Nation pastors here in the United States, says this, is that faith is not about what you get, but who you get. And that who is Jesus Christ. See, there is no great faith in our lives without a great resurrection. So if you're taking notes today, my message is entitled, Great Faith for the Resurrection. So today we're actually going to examine Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to one of Jesus' closest disciples, a man by the name of John, He was so close to Jesus that he actually witnessed Jesus' transfiguration and before that, his crucifixion. And John is dealing with the question that many of us deal with here today, and that is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And it's a legitimate question that actually takes great faith to believe. And at the core of our lack of faith in our life, it isn't so much our situation or the circumstances that we're going through. Our lack of faith comes down to that we really don't believe that what Jesus did on the cross for us was enough. We truly don't believe in the gospel. And this question that Jesus rise from the dead is actually being posed by John at the end of the chapter of chapter 20, which John says this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, the entire book of John was written so that at the very end, we would believe that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. And because of that, we can have great faith in Jesus And we can have great faith to believe that anything that's thrown at us in life, we can overcome it. So as we journey through today's message, there is one thing that is very apparent that I want all of us to remember, and that's this. Jesus reveals his most reliable evidence of his resurrection to the least of these. Again, Jesus reveals his most reliable evidence of his resurrection to the least of these. And by the least of these, I mean the people who were least likely to have believed in Jesus' resurrection and to the people who were least likely to be used by Jesus to prove his resurrection. See, today we're going to look at the facts that build our faith for the resurrection. Somebody say faith in the facts. Okay, I have three facts that causes us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and they are, number one, the empty tomb, number two, the sorrow that looms, and number three, the open wound. So number one, the empty tomb. Put on your seatbelt because we're going to be here for a little while, all right? So the beginning of chapter 20 reads as this. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloths which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw he believed. Well, the very... First obvious piece of evidence that we have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is, well, you guessed it, Jesus' body was not there. And to be honest with you, when it comes to things like missing bodies and death, I'm just going to say this from the get-go because I can say this. 
Um, this are, these are things that black people just don't stick around for. Like dead bodies and missing people. I mean, we don't even need all the details of the story. We don't want all the details because this is how you end up come up missing in scary movies like the old black dude from what's that? Um, what's that? No, not Get Out. Bird Box what was the other movie. Like, I'm not trying to end up like that dude, all right? We just simply avoid situations like this. See, a little over a year ago, my wife and I got a chance to visit Pittsburgh, where a lot of my family is from. And during that time, we actually visited my grandparents' graveside, which was sad to say the least, right? But it's also a really beautiful and historic place in the Pittsburgh area. And I just had a thought just for a second. I wasn't going to go through with it. I actually wanted to know what my grandparents looked like today. So I just had this thought. And again, I did not go through with it. I wondered if I would have went to the people who owned the cemetery because of my family's rich history, honestly, in the Pittsburgh area, would they allow me to see my grandparents? And let's just say, let's just say they said yes. And as they you know, took my grandparents out of the ground and they opened up the casket, let's imagine that my grandparents' body was not there. Now, a lot of people in that moment would have been to cry and wonder, oh my God, what's happening? What's going on? But not me as a black person. I just would have been like, I don't even know them. They're not my grandparents. I don't even know who they are. I don't know where they've been. And you know what? I just would have looked at Chris and been like, you know, we got to go get going to the Steelers game. The lines get pretty long. And I just would have went on about my happy black business because we don't stick around for things like this. But in all seriousness, in regards to the resurrection, I know some of you are saying, come on, Shay, you got to give me something better than Jesus rose from the dead and these you know, these soldiers who were guarding the tomb, they just fell asleep at the scene. And to that, I would say, I actually understand what you're saying. That's pretty sketchy. See, growing up as a child and even pretty much today, I question a lot of things as a pastor. I question a lot of what I read in the Bible. This is actually a true confession to my lack of faith. And to be honest, if you don't question some of the things that you read in the Bible, there, there's two things that can define you. Number one, you're either really gullible or you're what I like to call like you're super saved, like you just believe everything, right? I mean, some of these stories are pretty crazy, right? Like Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. It's like, I know a lot about eating a lot of catfish, but I don't know about the other way around, right? This stuff, some of this stuff just doesn't make sense. These are stories that I've struggled with, but over the years, this type of skepticism has caused me to study the legitimacy of Christianity and in turn has given me great faith because there are facts that remain true about the resurrection of Jesus. So, what were some of those first questions that I needed to be answered? We're actually going to discuss those today. And those questions were, A, did Jesus really die? B, who was guarding the tomb? And C, were the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection credible? So to answer the first question, we actually have to go back to John chapter 19. So A, did Jesus really die? And although you would think that this would be common sense, this is actually one of the most believed arguments against Jesus' resurrection. See, having done campus ministry for the past eight years, I actually hear this argument all the time. The thought of many is that Jesus merely fainted at the scene and he was drugged away as an act of a conspiracy by his followers, but that really doesn't make any sense. And we know that to be true because we're going to look at that, this. And it says in John chapter 19, 1, it says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. See, historically, the chances of surviving a crucifixion were so rare because scourging at the very least left the victim's intestines, veins, and arteries hanging out of their body before they were even nailed to the cross. Jesus' ordeal actually began with this type of scourging. And by the way, this wasn't just John who said this. You can actually read this in all four gospel accounts. See, Jesus was tied to a post and beaten with a Roman whip called a cat of nine tails that had bones woven throughout this leather strap. And this strap was placed on Jesus' back and across his body to where scripture says that he was unrecognizable. 
A matter of fact, many doctors today said Jesus could have died just from the amount of blood that he lost alone. From there, he had five to seven inch spikes driven through either his hands or his wrists and through his feet where he was placed on a cross and began to suffocate. You know what? And if a Roman soldier actually wanted to expedite this process, he would actually break the legs of the victim so they would not have enough strength to be able to pull themselves up to breathe. And this is actually what happened to the two men who were alongside of Jesus during his crucifixion. It says this in John chapter 19. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. See, by not breaking Jesus's legs, the soldiers actually assisted in helping fulfill a prophecy in Psalm 34 that said that none of the Messiah's bones would be broken. And although that Jesus' legs were not broken to ensure that he was dead, a Roman soldier then came and took a spear and thrusted it through Jesus' side, puncturing the sack around his heart. And that's what scripture says. It goes on to say this. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now, what is interesting to me is that this disciple and gospel writer, John, is actually given some very specific medical terminology about Jesus's death. See, critical injuries like the piercing that occurred to Jesus actually causes the body to do two things. Number one, it enters into circulatory shock, something that you see at assault crimes or really horrendous car accidents. And number two, People who die of these type of injuries actually enter into something called pericardial infusion. Mom, there you go. If you're listening, I'm using my master's degree for something. (laughs) Where water begins to accumulate around the heart and the lungs. And man, this is actually what happened to Jesus. His heart and lungs ruptured at this time. But it appears that this uneducated fisherman is giving this medical diagnosis about what happened to Jesus. So the question that I have is, do you think John, a fisherman, might have known what happened to Jesus by his mere education alone? To that, I would say, no, I don't think they teach you those things at fisherman school. And if they did, then I need to give back my master's degree and all the loans that came with it. I should have just went to school with John because I'm tired of trying to pay these things off. Do you think John intentionally did this as a way to just trick us years later? I would say no, like there's really no reason for that or Do you think it's more reasonable to attribute that the description of what happened to Jesus was just a real observation that John had? To that, I would say yes. And if you don't believe me as a missionary or as a pastor, because that can be pretty sketchy, then go read much of the same account from a man named Luke, who was a doctor who came to know Jesus, or go talk to any other doctor here in the San Antonio area to recognize that dead is dead. See, Jesus is not walking, he's not talking, and minute by minute his body is losing temperature to ensure that he is dead. But let's suppose somehow Jesus survived all of this, right? And let's suppose Jesus still had brain activity, and let's suppose Jesus was still breathing, but beyond his presumed death, I can guarantee you he would not have actually survived what's next. So it says this in John chapter 19, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So more time has passed as they have now taken Jesus off the cross and have removed the nails out of his body, and they are now taking him to the place where he's going to get buried. And although we can read this in just a few seconds, this actually takes a lot of time to do. The scripture says that they wrapped Jesus with 75 pounds of spices from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And they did this to prevent premature decay because embalming actually never existed at this time in history. 
But I want us to think about what all it would have really taken to have resuscitated Jesus in that moment. He was scourged. He endured a crucifixion. He had a spear thrusted to his side. And now he's wrapped in 75 pounds of myrrh and spices for over three days, including his face. Jesus was not breathing. And neither would you be. And I don't mean to be rude, but I'm actually going to be seriously sarcastic in this moment. Do you really think you could have saw Jesus inching himself off of that table being wrapped in 75 pounds of spices? I mean, if you do, not only do I believe Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, I'm about to ask him, can he be my personal trainer so I can get those type of abs? Because I'm trying to lose 50 pounds this year. I mean, this is insane. The type of strength that would be able to cause this to happen is a godlike strength. So maybe that's just who he is. Maybe he's God. B, who was guarding the tomb? See, in Matthew 27, the Bible says that after this burial process ended, they placed Jesus in a tomb and they sealed it with a stone for over three days until he rose from the dead. N.T. Wright, who's the Bishop of Durham and a man who has written many books attributed to the Christian faith and a guy who's much smarter than me, honestly, says this in his documentary entitled The Case for Christ. He says, in those days, as a Roman soldier, if you let a prisoner get away, his life was replaced with it. See, in no way, shape, or form would a Roman soldier ever risk his life or his family's life for a man that they wanted to condemn in the first place. In addition, that stone that was placed in front of Jesus' tomb, many historians said, would have taken over 20 men to be able to remove it. So let's just say somehow Jesus is still alive, and let's just say he had the ability to move that stone by himself from the inside that I might add, Then Jesus, with all of his injuries from that scourging, from that crucifixion, would now have to fight off however many Roman guards were standing in front of his tomb, whom again, life would be on the line if he ever got away. See, the only way for a stone like that to be moved, it would take a supernatural-like power to happen. And that is exactly what happened according to Scripture. It says this in Matthew 28, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it like a G. That's the hood version. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And yes, I bet you they did become like dead men when they saw a dead man come alive. And this is why, again, black people don't hang around for stuff like this. Like, this ain't supposed to happen. Dead people are not supposed to come back alive. See, the angel that moved that stone displayed a resurrection type of power that caused everybody in that particular area to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he was ensure and in true our risen king. Not in that moment did they ever doubt that Jesus wasn't the resurrected king. Actually, their faith became firm and not futile anymore. So the question I have for us today is what stones in your life need to be removed out of the way so that you can believe in Jesus or his power in whatever your life situation is today? I would submit to you that the main stone that needs to be rolled away is for you to actually believe that that original stone was moved out of the way, proving that Jesus was God and that he still is today. But that leads me to the third question of my skepticism or anybody's skepticism as that is, were the witnesses of Jesus's resurrection even credible? And although there were many um, witnesses at the resurrection, there's actually three that we're going to focus on today that we see here in this particular passage. And they are, number one, Simon Peter, number two, Mary Magdalene, and number three, Thomas. So number one, Simon Peter. Scripture says, so she, she being Mary, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. 
he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, why would Jesus want to make Peter one of his first credible witnesses of his resurrection? Well, I'm glad that you asked. And to me, it's quite simple. See, Jesus wanted to make Peter one of the first credible witnesses of his resurrection because Jesus is always in the business of proving himself to the people who deny him the most. See, this was the same Peter who said, Jesus, I'll follow you to the end of the days. This was the same Peter who denied Jesus three times before his death. And yet, despite Peter's denial of Jesus, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, I'm still devoted to revealing my resurrection to you. See, this is what God does for us today. So whether you have never believed in Jesus, whether you're currently denying him or you're currently denying his resurrection power and whatever you're facing today, don't worry about Jesus running away from you. He's running to you, proving himself and saying, hey, despite your doubt, I'm here to prove my resurrection to you today. That is what God is doing for us. Well, what about Mary Magdalene? And that finally leads me to my second point, which is the sorrow that looms. So in John chapter 20, we see Peter runs off and he goes to tell all of his other disciples about Jesus rising from the dead. And he's so excited. But this is also the same chapter where we see Mary feeling quite the opposite. And it says this in John chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. See, one of the greatest pieces of evidence that you and I have in believing the resurrection of Jesus is the sorrowfulness that Mary displayed when she found out Jesus' body was missing. But why was that? Because Jesus was the one who healed all of Mary's affliction. See, before Jesus' death, Mary had an encounter with Jesus in which he actually delivered her from all demonic oppression in her life. So for her to not have only experienced the recent death of her healer, she is now dealing with the fact that she will never see his physical body ever again. And I want to ask you a question today. Have you ever experienced something in your life that once brought you so much joy only for it unexpectedly to be taken away from you? Some of us in this room know what, knows what that feels like. Maybe it was a child or a family member who passed away too soon. For other of us, you know what, it was that business or that job you put your hope in to bring you much provision and joy and it's fell before your very eyes. For some of us, it's that spouse, that family member, that friend that left you in your greatest time of need. It's a type of pain that we experience in our life that hurts us so bad that we never saw it coming. And then out of nowhere, life begins to drop more bad news on us with more bad news on us. And then all hope is lost. And we begin to say things like, God, I don't believe in you. I don't trust you. Why should I even have faith in you? And it is in that moment that hope begins to loom over our lives. Some of you who actually know me know this, and for those of you who don't, I have struggled with depression for the past four years really intensely. And I thank you for those of you here at this church who have helped me walk through that particular season and even now. But during this walking season, I begin to ask myself, okay, when did this depression start? And one moment that is actually, like, I believe that's helping, that has assisted in helping cause this depression really was the passing of my grandfather, that that grandfather that we went to go visit their graveside in Pittsburgh. See, my grandfather was a man that loved God. He loved my grandmother. He loved my dad. And my grandfather was a healthy man, but he died unexpectedly of a heart attack in my grandmother's arms. And I remember as a 10-year-old boy having to go to Pittsburgh, and they asked me, Shad, would you play your trumpet as his funeral? I'm like, yes. 
Little known fact about me, yes, I did play the trumpet. And I remember walking into um, the funeral and seeing my grandfather's body, and um, it still hurts today. And I remember tears began to just come down my eyes as I played Amazing Grace because of the pain and sorrow that I felt in that moment. Shortly after that, we went to the burial site where we were met by American soldiers because of my grandfather's service in the Korean War. And it was there at that place that they handed my grandmother a United States flag. And there we saw my grandfather's body being lowered into the ground. I remember still to this day, my grandmother shaking uncontrollably with that flag in her hand as my dad held her, as we knew that we would never see my grandfather's body again. And it was shortly after that that we returned to the home where my grandfather died in my grandmother's arms. And it was there that we found my great-grandmother, the father of my, the mother of my grandfather, passed out dead in her wheelchair. See, she was paralyzed and she could not attend the funeral. And the only thing that we could think about was that the sorrow of her knowing that she lost her son and that she would never see him again just caused her to pass away. See, life has a way of letting sorrow loom over you in the darkest of moments, and it actually crushes our faith. And this is how Mary felt. Her healer is dead. Her Savior's body is missing. And the only thing that could bring her joy, she could never get back, well, unless there was a resurrection. So it says this, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I know some of you today may be here in this service, and sorrow is over your heart. Faith is lacking, but what do you do when a resurrected Jesus shows up to that dead thing in your life and says, my son or my daughter, why are you weeping? I'm actually here to make all things new. See, I have rose from the dead, so let your faith arise. And if somebody in here would actually believe in this, you would give God a shout of praise because he is a great God of great faith for us. So this year, please don't weep away your next business. Don't weep away your next relationship. Don't weep away your next healing or whatever else it may be, because whether it's one day here on earth or when you get to heaven, there's a resurrection that's coming that all of your past sorrows will fade away. And what you see now is really only for a moment. See, great faith is not in the absence of sorrow, but in the midst of it when Jesus says, hey, I'm here, I'm alive, have faith and I'm going to change this situation. And you can be like Mary and have great faith and say, God, I believe in you and I move forward with you. But the question still remains, why would Jesus reveal his resurrection to Mary Magdalene of all people? See, she actually is not a credible witness to anybody of that day, because number one, she's a woman, and unfortunately, women in Palestinian Jewish culture were considered to be second-class citizens, and we still see that today, and sadly, we still see that here in America, which doesn't make sense. And not only that, she's a woman with a shady past because she had all this demonic influence in her life. So somebody may say, well, Shad, you're saying this is Jesus's credible witness, somebody that nobody would listen to, and to that, I would say, yes, this is Jesus's credible witness, and God would actually use Mary because he created women. And God is smart enough to know if there was anybody who would ever get the facts straight of the story of his resurrection, it definitely wouldn't be a man because we forget the details of everything. <laughs> it would have to be a woman, right? And I know this to be true now as a married man because there's not a day that Caress does not come home and tell me a story that I may not or want to even hear about in which she gives me all the details of that story. And me being a godly and gracious and fasted and prayed up husband, I listen to all those details. 
even if it's in the fourth quarter of a football game or whether I'm playing Xbox Live and playing Halo with my boys here at Luminous. I'm still listening. But it goes back to what I said earlier, right? That Jesus does, in fact, reveal his most reliable evidence of his resurrection to the least of these. See, being a woman with a troubled past didn't disqualify Mary from being a credible witness of Jesus. And, you know, and in the same way, your flaws, your past hurts, your lack of faith, your current pain does not disqualify Jesus from using you to be a witness of, of him to other people or receiving God's resurrection type power in whatever your life situation is today. So, but before we actually end this message, we actually have one more credible witness, and that witness is Thomas. And that leads me to my last point, the open wound. So scripture says this in John chapter 20. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, him being Thomas, unless I see in his hand the mark of the nail and place my finger into the mark of the nail and place my hand until his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I mean, you got to love how Jesus just keeps showing up on these folks, right? <laughs> then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Now, what is interesting to me about Thomas is not just the description of what we've read about, about his encounter with Jesus, but about the label that people have placed on Thomas for centuries. I mean, many of you know his nickname. What is Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas, right? This is a funny thing that skeptics have actually gotten right about us as Christians is that we can be so judgmental at times. I mean, we have deemed this man not by his God-given name, but by the sin that he committed. He was a doubter. I mean, give the dude a break. He doubted one time. That's all we see in Scripture. He doubted one time. You know, I wonder what some of us would be called about that one sin that we committed a long time ago before we ever started coming to church that we don't want nobody to know about, right? Now, that's what we should be confessing during our time of prayer and fasting here. See, I actually understand Thomas. See, Jesus was at first, he's dead, and now the disciples are saying that he's alive, and Thomas is saying, hey, I have not seen Jesus for eight days. I actually need some facts about his resurrection. See, Thomas actually needed to see and feel this supposed resurrected king, but why is that? It's really simple. Jesus' delayed revelation of his resurrection produced doubt in Thomas's heart. I'll say that one more time. Jesus' delayed revelation of his resurrection produced doubt in Thomas's heart. And delay always produces doubt. And when doubt sets in, that's when we're like, hey, we need some facts, God. We need some proof. This is something that's not hard for us to understand. I mean, how many of us have been in a hard time and we go to God in prayer and we're like, okay, God, in this moment, I need you to answer this prayer right now because if you don't, I'll never believe in you again. And many times in our lack of faith and disbelief, Jesus in his mercy does not condemn us for our unbelief, he actually proves himself in the way that we need him to. And this is what he did for Thomas. See, look at this again. He said, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Listen to me. Thomas's doubt did not deny Jesus from revealing his resurrection to him. So your doubt is not going to stop Jesus from revealing his resurrection power in your life situation today. See, because Jesus let Thomas know him by the way that he needed to. This is why Thomas came back and said, my Lord and my God, because he knew that he was indeed alive, living, and our resurrected king. 
This is why Jesus' resurrection is not about the sinner's faith, but about the Savior's faithfulness. This is why I said earlier, it's not about how much faith we have, but who our faith is in. This is why the Bible says that God is faithful even when we are faithless. See, we don't come to know Jesus by what we do or how much faith we have or what we believe. It's about what Jesus has done in our life. And because of that, we serve a great and living God who gives us great faith. But how did Jesus reveal himself to Thomas? Well, it's quite clear, but maybe not in a way that you think. See, Jesus did not reveal himself to Thomas in a dream or a prophetic word or a personal blessing that some of us may just be fasting for in this moment. Jesus didn't even reveal himself to Thomas in a theological debate on Facebook. That's a resolution that we should all get rid of this year. Stop arguing about Jesus on social media. Jesus revealed himself to Thomas through the wounds that he sustained on the cross. Could it be that Jesus actually has revealed himself to you, but yet it's through that avenue called pain? To the skeptic in here today, I believe that Jesus has given you enough faith to believe, but maybe he has shown you who he is through that very thing that has caused you to not believe in him in the first place, which is the pain that you've experienced from your own life circumstances. Today I would say Jesus actually understands that type of pain because look at what he endured on the cross. To the believer, you may very well believe in Jesus, but if you ever meet a Thomas who, like yourself, doubts God, depending on what situation you're in, just remember that person doesn't need to hear more about Jesus as much as they need to experience Jesus for themselves like Thomas did. See, one of the greatest ways that you can allow other people to experience Jesus is by letting them see the trials that you have gone through and the great faith that you had to have in God to pull you through it. See, when you get close enough to the doubter, like Jesus got to Thomas and let other people touch your place in your life of your greatest pain, then people will begin to believe, you know what, that God that pulled you through that situation, he can do it for me too. This is why I believe that some of the wounds that we have in our life, they don't completely heal because it's a place for you and I to be vulnerable before others like Jesus was vulnerable to us on that cross. Some of us have been asking things like, God, if you really healed me, why do I still have the residue of pain in my life? Yeah, I'm not a cheater anymore, but I still deal with lust issues. Yeah, God, I'm faithful in giving my tithes, but yet my finances still aren't working out. Yeah, God, I'm faithful to everything you're telling me, but I'm still not seeing personal breakthrough in my life. Could it be that the trials that you've went through in life are for somebody else's salvation so that they can have great faith in God? So what wounds are you asking Jesus to close today that he won't? Again, your wounds are for the doubter's belief in God. Your wounds are a reminder that when you are weak, Christ is strong. And your wounds are a beautiful reminder that when death tried to win in your life, it did not stand a chance because our great God rose from that grave. And now you know that whatever you face this year, you can look at it and say, death doesn't stand a chance. My God is living. He's resurrected. And I have great faith to move forward like he's called me to. See, every eyewitness that I have detailed to you today is a credible witness because God reveals his most reliable evidence of his resurrection to the least of these, even to those who never had great faith. See, God was a revealer to a denier in Peter. He was a revealer to a sorrowful and distressed woman in Mary. And he was a revealer to a doubter in Thomas. And you know what? He's a revealer to all of us in here who lack faith sometimes myself included. 
See, there's a clear lesson that we can remember today, whether we are a believer or a skeptic, and it's found in the words of a Bible commentator by the name of David Guzik. And he says this, when you want assurance, look to the wounds of Jesus. They are evidence of his love, of his sacrifice, of his victory, of his resurrection. See, there is a special blessing to those of us today who will believe of this blessed assurance. And this assurance can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus. And I guarantee you this, that if you believe in that resurrection, which is true, you will have great faith this year. If you believe that, would you say amen? Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your goodness and mercy to love us and to expose the facts of your resurrection to lay bare before our very eyes. There may be some of you here in this room that you have denied Jesus for most of your life. Yeah, you may know about him or you may not believe in him at all, but you sit here today and you say, you know what? The facts of his resurrection are real and they're credible and they've moved on my heart. And you're saying today, I want to give my life fully to Jesus Christ. While every eye is closed and every head is bowed, if that's you, would you just raise your hand? God, you see these hands? Thank you. Thank you, Lord. As a church, let us all say this prayer with them. If you have your hands up, repeat after me with everybody in the church. Say, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and I have not believed in you. But today, I see the facts of your resurrection. But more importantly, I see the facts of how you're changing my heart. Today I confess you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving me, not just today, but for all of eternity. And for the rest of us who are here in this room, yes, you may believe in Jesus, but you're looking at your life circumstances, and after you have heard this message, you know that you have not fully believed in the gospel because you would not be worried about this situation. If today you're saying, God, I repent for not believing in your resurrection, but I'm asking for great faith today to be disposed upon me so that I can move forward this year like you called me to in great faith. If that's you, would you just raise your hand if you're in need of great faith? Father God, you see every one of these hands. And you're a good and gracious God, a God that rose from the dead and bestows power on those of us who believe. So God, thank you for rising from the dead. It's a reminder that death will not overcome us this this year. Our circumstances are not what we feel or what we see, God. We believe in you. We trust in you, God. You are the risen king. And God, I pray that you would give faith to every person, knowing that their situation is going going to change. But God, I also pray that you would give them faith, just knowing that they see you again that they love you again. They know that they're not taking their eyes off of you. And God, would you give us the faith to to also believe and see that the trials that we go through, they're not just about us. It's an opportunity for us to show ourselves and our trials to other people so they can say, you know what? I want to have great faith in that great God. And that's what you're calling us to do here at Luminous so that people would see you clearly through us, Jesus. So we thank you for the faith that you've given us today and the faith that you secured over 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much for having me.